From Relay FM, this is Download, recorded Thursday, August the 9th, 2018. This is episode 66. This year is felt like 10 years. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I am Jason Snell, your host, and I am joined by two wonderful people. Lisa Schmeiser is back, one of our most frequent guests. Uh, it's good to have you back, Lisa. Thank you. It's good to be here. And um, Stephen Hackett's also here. Uh, Stephen Hackett's hey. usually here, but he's going to talk <laughs> more today. Hi, Stephen. I've been promoted to a guest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks. I, I wore a suit. I hope that was okay. Mm, that's a it's little very, weird. It's very sweaty in here. <laughs> it's going to get you booed at a Apple conference, probably. Maybe. Because they boo people. Unless the Apple conference is overseas. They're, I, I cherish that photo of Steve Jobs wearing an ill-fitting suit while, while giving a presentation in Japan. Mm. Oh, there was yeah. a time yeah, that- when he wore suits and then he, he decided <laughs> turtlenecks all the way. Yeah, not even turtlenecks though, mock necks, which yeah, is sort yeah, of the, the I can't commit of turtlenecks. It's it's strange. Um, uh, there was a period where Steve Jobs was like uh, back at Apple, and he was like doing presentations on stage to employees wearing cutoffs. And it was like that was probably when the intervention happened, and they said, "Okay, jeans and a mock turtleneck from now on, Steve." Yeah, not not a great not a great look. I mean, oh my gosh! At this point, <laughs> the cutoffs—that's just such a great detail. It, it is. There is. There's amazing video of him like saying how he's going to kill Open Dock and things like that, and he is not yep. wearing appropriate clothes for work for the workplace. Is what I'm saying. Is he at least wearing shoes, or was he like paddling around in a pair of flip flops too? I mean, I'm I'm trying to figure out how the whole look. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we do have to do a podcast here, so we should get down to it. It's the most interesting stories of this week, as picked by me and Stephen Hackett. Lisa didn't get to pick them, but uh, we picked her because she said yes, and because I know she's going to be great at topic number one, which is about community standards. So just a little bit of background. Lisa and I were two of the three or four people who were involved at the beginning of setting up all of the kind of user interaction stuff at Macworld back in the day. That was probably coming up on 20 years ago now. I don't even mm-hmm. want to think about it. And and what, I, what I'm saying is I know that Lisa has been through and I have been through and a few other people, including uh, Chris Breen, who if he didn't work at Apple, I would have invited on him on this episode too, uh, to deal with how you set community standards. What is mm-hmm. okay in your community? What is not okay in your community? And I've been thinking about that a lot this week because this is the week that that conversation kind of became huge. Apple removed five of InfoWars' six conspiracy-laden podcasts from its directory, which is the largest podcast directory in the world within a few hours. Spotify followed followed suit. Uh, There was a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Uh, YouTube removed Alex Jones' channel, the the guy who does InfoWars. It had nearly 2.5 million subscribers and more than a billion views. He previously had had his live streaming suspended for 90 days. Um, However, he attempted to live stream on other channels, which is a violation of YouTube's rules. Facebook removed four pages promoting Jones and his shows. uh, And they also suspended Jones himself from being a page admin for 30 days. MailChimp, the uh, mass email platform, removed Alex Jones's account. Uh, These companies all reported that Jones and his content break their content policies against hate speech. Although Apple left the InfoWars app in the App Store, and it's also still in the Google Play Store, and Apple said the app does not technically break its content guidelines, so they were going to leave it in place. Now, the one company I haven't mentioned yet is Twitter. 
That's because uh, Twitter declined to suspend Alex Jones and InfoWars. And then Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, in a series of tweets, of course, said that the accounts did not violate Twitter's rules and went on to say Twitter wants to promote discussion on its site. And it's critical that journalists document, validate and refute such information directly so people can form their own opinions. This is what serves the public public conversation best. So... It's been a week for that sort of thing, and I wanted I wanted to talk about what uh, you know what 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 are these services doing? What's within their rights to do? What should they be doing? What, how do, what is uh, what does free speech mean on the internet anyway? Um, uh, Lisa, uh, c- give me your give me your initial thoughts about this whole ball of ugliness. You know, like you pointed out, we uh, launched the Macworld forums, and that was an exercise in community management. And uh, while I was doing that, my sideline my my side hustle as the kids call it these days i was a writer and moderator for television about pity and that was a real education in community standards and community enforcement um even more so than the macro forums and what i have noticed with years of watching and participating and moderating with online communities is there will always be a point of no return and sometimes it, it it comes from the users and sometimes it comes from administration. But when there is no longer a consensus between the people who host the forum or the outlet and the people who participate, that's when things start fragmenting. And I think that when Jack Dorsey took to Twitter this week to inform everybody that a person who has... Um, preyed on the grief of dozens of families and made a living spinning conspiracy theories and harassing them and shilling snake oil on the side when they're like, oh, he hasn't done anything wrong. I think that was a moment where a lot of people who were still really passionately engaged in Twitter, or at least engaged in Twitter because they thought it added value to their life, stepped back and were like, do I really want to be part of an ecosystem where the person running this place says, Oh no, it, Alex Jones is completely cool. And the responsibility is not with us who have given him an outlet. The responsibility is with everybody else. Um, so I, I feel, I feel like this is a big inflection point for, for, for people who may not do a lot of thinky, thinky things about the public space or free speech or community, but rather they're looking at it from the perspective of, "Ah, I'm not sure this is where I want to be anymore. I don't, I don't want to be associated with this. Well, specifically in in Jack's uh, tweet storm. So someone knows how to put those together, I guess for him is that journalists should enter into these conversations with their fact checking abilities, right? That it was up to journalists to help people make up their minds about these things. And which, he's presumed he's presu- that that means that he's expecting journalists to donate their labor for free to his yeah. platform to boost engagement, which I, I also found specious. Yeah. It's not their job to police his platform because he has bad rules. You know, if if somebody like InfoWars or anybody else is publishing this sort of garbage, I'm trying really hard not to say anything Jason doesn't have to bleep. Um publishing this garbage, then the problem is not th- with that. The problem is with your rules. If that person doesn't break your rules, your rules are bad. Like it's, it's not that complicated. And it's unfortunately, it's just one more example of Jack Dorsey and Twitter's leadership making exactly the wrong decision. I made a joke on this show early on that Twitter executives are really good at doing the wrong thing. And 
that has gone from sort of a joke about their product and it's like inscrutable to use the first party Twitter client to letting people stay on the service that are actively harming society and actively harming families who have gone through unspeakable horror. And I understand that he, the Jack thinks, and I believe he thinks this, that by doing this, they are that the Twitter is somehow above the fray of, and this is a political issue. It's not a political issue. It's this guy pumps vile into society, and he should be he should be unable to do that on a platform that's open like Twitter. Um, yeah, but the thing when I basically just like rage uninstalled Tweetbot from my phone was when I got to the tweet about oh journalists should like enter into these conversations like that's not their job. Their job is to report the news, and if Infowars is in the news, that's fine. But their job is not to run around and fix your platform. The presumption that an entire profession should donate their labor to increase his share <laughs> to increase his shareholder value, because what he's effectively saying is, so long as engagement on this platform remains high enough to keep the shareholders yep. happy, I'm not going to do anything. And the presumption that, um, and what he's saying is, he doesn't care about whether or not facts actually get out there. He doesn't care about human damage. What he cares about is making sure that he makes engagement numbers to keep the shareholders happy and that is his that is his clearest priority and i think what he's forgetting is journalists could leave twitter i mean there was once upon a time when journalists were crawling all over myspace for stories and to report what was going on with the music and the kids and i challenge you to find any journalist in a newsroom now who's like oh i was on myspace this week and blah 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 <laughs> um <laughs> let's not forget too that twitter is a place where journalists are frequently harassed and threatened yeah. yes. right so it's like you need to stay on the platform where you're going to get threatened and people are going to target you i've known a lot of women reporters who have gone off it this year a mm-hmm. lot of women who make their living online and Almost all of them had said, you know, I thought this was a way to build an audience. I've heard from editors that I have to be on Twitter to build a name and to build my traffic and get awareness out there. It's not worth it. It's not giving me any noticeable bump to the bottom line. It's not worth my health. It's not worth my profession. And these are people who work at the Financial Times and uh, other publications that are not just, uh, you know, Gen Z websites. And I'm not saying Gen Z websites disparagingly. I'm saying that these are people who are normally in institutions that are fairly conservative and they are people who are, who, who have clearly been laser focused on the current and everything right. And they're like, Twitter, Twitter's got diminishing value for them. So yeah, I, I think the cynicism behind Jack Dorsey's in, or whoever ghost wrote this, like the entire thing where it's, oh, we've done nothing wrong here. We're, but you're not above the fray. You're capitalizing on the fray every day. If they were above the fray, they would have cracked down a long time ago on systemic harassment campaigns. They would have developed better tools to sniff this out. They would have curbed the bot problem that they have where people get dogpiled by bots and that's not the case at all. They've been doing everything they can to maintain or increase engagement. And this is another thing where they're basically arguing that they would rather have engagement over, uh, they, they want engagement and the corresponding, uh, shareholder prices and the corresponding ad metrics. They want that over everything else. 
And I th- and and I think users are beginning to reckon with that. With oh, is this is this what I want? <laughs> I I think there is some degree of um, uh, forgive me for saying this, but some degree of laziness about this too, mm-hmm. which is just um, they don't want to deal with it. And I mean, mm-hmm. there's very much from Twitter, and and you you've seen mm-hmm. it from other companies that have, have have had to deal with this issue of why are these things still on your platform? There's a lot of hiding behind their rules, but of course they make the rules. It's, there's like our hands are tied. The Twitter uh, rules say we can't kick them off it's like you make the rules your You're hands are twitter yeah. you can't rewrite your, your, your rules? hands yeah. are not tied but what they're afraid of is getting in a situation where they're going to have to make difficult case-by-case mm-hmm. decisions because case-by-case decisions take a long time and they a lot can't of be effort. automated they take people right and, and they don't want to go down that path if they can avoid it but of course what we saw with apple and then very rapidly spotify and youtube and facebook was mm-hmm. executives at a very high level saying no this guy is poison and yeah. he's trying very hard to just stay on the right side of the rules but it's very clear that if you look at his his footprint in the entire world not just on our service but in the whole world that he is like you said lisa a snake oil salesman who is wrapped in a conspiracy theory because he knows it sells well on the internet it has nothing to do with politics he appeals to people of a specific political bent but it's not really about politics it's it's stuff that is not true that is provably mm-hmm. easily provably not true that he spins for people and makes it seem like it's something plausible and gets them wrapped up in his conspiracies and then he sells them you know bone broth powder Ugh, yeah. right and and, and I, the, the thing most disingenuous about twitter's statement was basically what jack dorsey is saying is we're going to pretend that the rest of the world doesn't exist and mm-hmm. only enforce our policy based on what we know based on behavior on the uh, on our service and first off that's kind of ridiculous and second you make the policy so it's 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 funny and of course as soon as this happened everybody else pointed out like friends of theirs who've been suspended on twitter by referring to the people who are giving them targeted Mm -hmm. harassment uh with bad words like you know and and their account gets suspended the person who was being attacked so like twitter is trying to do better here i do believe that but they seem completely overmatched and also you know obviously from the top there is a real question about the culture of twitter and if they really really believe that they want to they want to stop uh bad actors on their um on their service or whether they just want to uh wave a you know wave a a fig leaf at it yeah i was thinking about this right before we started and i was like to me the microcosm of how twitter approaches the users they consider valuable for their service is I have seen countless Nazis and daily caller writers with blue check marks by their name. I can't get, I can't get verified to save my life. I'm an actual reporter who's been in the industry for two decades with a lot of bylines in, in reputable publications. And I don't harass people on Twitter and I can't get verified for love or for money. And so what that tells me is that the, what I put out in the world is far less valuable to them to, than how I engage in a service and whether or not I, whether or not I generate repeated return engagement. And it doesn't matter how I do that. So I think that's what it comes down to is Twitter has made it really clear that what they value above all else are users who will generate press, who will generate attention, who generate repeat visits and who generate repeat engagement so that they can, you know, grab that data, sell that data, 
make their money, keep their shareholders happy. So I, I want to say that there, there are a lot of people saying, well, you know, you can't pick winners and losers in politics if you're a platform mm-hmm. owner. And I, I will agree with that to a certain extent. Like politics is different, though, from what Alex Jones is doing. Mm-hmm. And if and I think one of the reasons people are getting upset is because it's very much like if this guy is not bad enough then you mm-hmm. have no standards at all. Like, he's a, he's a pretty extreme outlier. He, it's very obvious who he is. And yet, uh, it took an executive decision by a bunch of tech companies to remove him and then a lack of same uh, by Twitter. Now, the, the argu- there is an argument to be made, and I, I wonder what you guys think about it, about, like, do these, you know, what are, what is Apple doing by saying, well, your podcast is not going to be in our directory anymore, although your app is still going to be? What is YouTube by saying, uh, we want you off their channel? Is, is that because he's so high profile now that they can't afford to not do it? Or, you know, because obviously they don't want to be going through every single, the scale of it. You just, you can't monitor everything that's on these huge platforms, unlike the old forums that you and I moderated, Lisa. Yeah. You, can't, you can't do that here. So with the, with the Apple and Spotify thing, you, there, last week, uh, Sleeping Giants and Shannon Watts and a few other people who have been leading uh, very successful social media campaigns and boycotts against companies that do business with who they decide are bad actors, they uh, began calling for a Spotify boycott thanks to the Alex Jones podcast. And they're putting on the pressure and putting on the pressure. And I think what is happening for tech companies in general is they are realizing that being politically neutral or trying to appear politically neutral can be a big liability in the sphere of public opinion in the era we're in now. I mean, we were talking about this with, um, say, Microsoft and the ICE stuff the last time I was on the show. And my, I would love to know what Apple's decision-making process was with this. Um, but I do think it's notable that the first company to unequivocally say, yeah, no, we're not doing out. Alex Jones no longer has an outlet for his podcast with our product and our network. I think it's notable the first company to do that isn't dependent on advertising revenue and is make and is gearing up to make a big play in the streaming media marketplace. So Apple has a different economic model than almost everybody else who followed them. But their competitors, Spotify and YouTube and the rest, all looked and was like, well, crap, if Apple is doing this, and they're also positioning themselves to move into our space, we had better maintain some kind of parity, both in public perception and in what we're willing to do. So I'm not sure this is entirely about idealism and you've gone too far. But I do agree with you, Jason, that yeah, at some point, tech platforms are going to have to if it's brought to their attention that, oh, by the way, you have this really horrific thing going on, then yeah, they should act and they should act without apology on it, I think. Yeah, the um, make no mistake, Apple is incredibly powerful, their podcast directory is, in terms of uh, it is the definitive podcast directory. That said, a lot of people saying, oh, but what kind of precedent does this set when somebody could be removed like that? And I don't want any company to have that kind of power. And, you know, that's a good argument that I don't think is being made in good faith by the people saying that this case because the fact is the internet is open alex jones's podcasts are still available you have to go through more work because they're not found in apple's directory anymore but if you take the podcast link from alex jones's website and paste it in to the podcast app on ios or into itunes on the mac or windows 
it works. Like it's not, they're not the internet. You can still visit Alex Jones's website on the internet. Like there you are other paths. You can download his app from you, the app store. And, uh, in <laughs> fact, you can download his app from the app store. So this goes back to, do you remember uh, this, that this, this year has felt like 10 years there? Um, when there was that whole kerfluffle over Kevin Williamson, he of the let's hang every woman by the neck until dead if she's had an abortion, that guy, right. when there was the kerfluffle over, oh, he should be hired at the Atlantic and right wing folks were really upset at the idea that promoting these ideas would bar him from getting a job. Um, and they were like, we need the diversity of ideas. He has to be there. And it was for the crux of the argument was, they, there are people who think that if they do not have access to what they perceive as the most powerful points of dissemination, they're, then they don't have access at all. And this is what's going with Alex Jones. No one is stopping him from podcasting. He's yeah. just lost access to the most powerful points of dissemination. And people are conflating those two things, either because they're not smart enough to understand that they're not the same two things or because their grievance is actually not about the, 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 Oh, free speech. It's about the fact that they're being shut out from what they perceive as the most powerful points of dissemination, the most powerful points in the marketplace. But like you could, you could create the best sippy cup known to man. And if Walmart and target are not distributing it, they don't owe you that. Like you're still free to sell your sippy cup on the internet. You're just going to have a harder time than a company that like puts its sippy cup in target. This is basically the same thing. Thing. The marketplace of ideas translate to marketplace of access. And this is where I think Jack Dorsey is exposed as a fraud <laughs> is, um, th- you know, it is a privilege. You said it, Lisa, you know, it is a privilege to use these high level uh, distribution mediums. It is like the creator of a product not getting on in Walmart or Target. Nobody's saying you can't sell your product, but it's going to be harder. It is a privilege that not everybody should get. And I'm not saying there should be some sort of litmus test where Apple says we are only going to accept things that uh, conform with our political view. But a civil society has some fundamental should have some fundamental rules about what kind of speech is allowable and what kind of speech is not i'm not saying the government i'm saying a civil society saying you know what we don't want all of us companies who have these platforms we don't want to give a privileged position to racists let's say to terrorists you know, can we say that to people who commit heinous crimes and advocate for the commission of those crimes? Could we could we all agree on that? Like nobody has the right to the privileged channels. We don't and want the, to coordinate a campaign of harassment against bereaved parents. Exactly. Like that, so, that should be like a baseline. Like the fact that there are people who are debating vociferously over their right to harass the parents of, of to harass grieving parents of, of slain kindergartners. Like they're acting as if there's some big abrogation of their constitutional rights if it's hey maybe don't stalk these people so much they have to move eight times in five years like, no so, free speech like, so come on. so this is and this is jack dorsey is basically saying i abdicate all responsibility to to have any 
kind of like le- that level of authority over revoking privilege on my platform unless these rules that we set that I could change at any moment are violated, which they haven't been. So I'm going to walk away. It is an abdication of responsibility for fundamental things. And, and, and the result is that his platform is a disaster because and this is what I wanted to get to is the lesson that I learned. And Lisa, you were at the front of it because you'd been through the wars before we started building our community together 20 years ago. The lesson that I learned is the people who run the platform, the people who own the community, the community is not the people who own it. It's the people who are in it. But the one responsibility of the people who manage it have is to set the rules and to say, this is okay. And this is not okay. And then to enforce the rules. And as anybody who's been involved in an online community knows, if you don't enforce the rules, the people, the worst people in your community will take it over and will drive out the uh, the rest of the people because they don't want to be there anymore. And Twitter is that on a worldwide scale on a global and and the thing is um it's okay not to be liked when you're enforcing the rules this is one of the things we, i learned especially with community community moderation um with television that pity is there were always points where you'd get a uh, i wouldn't say a critical mass of posters but a mass of posters who thought they were a critical mass of posters who would storm off the boards on moss and try to create a parallel or alternate forum where, oh, we don't have the rules that we were rebelling against and we're doing things differently and better. And those always devolve into infighting and sniping. There was never a competitor that came up and overtook the television without pity forums because people who were on those forums knew what they were getting. Like it said, so right on the box, the experience was consistent and it was predictable and it wasn't highly, it wasn't highly personal. And, um, and it was transparent. And one of the biggest problems that Twitter has, they don't enforce the rules. And it honestly seems that it's because they're afraid of a legitimate competitor. But with the one-two punch of the lack of enforcement, which makes for an inconsistent experience, and then a lack of transparency around what they are or are not enforcing, there's no sense of trust or investment in in Twitter as a community or as or, or as a place where people can build an engaged community anymore. And if you don't have that sense of trust or investment, you actually do open the door much wider to a, comp- to a competing platform. And something's going to come up with that. Stephen, you want to wrap us up here? Yeah. I mean, I think at the heart of this is uh, just a clear understanding of like what free speech actually means. We are not guaranteed free speech on a service run by a private or even a publicly traded company. The, the right to free speech as an American citizen is, is a contract between us and the government. And, that's the, you know, that's the common refrain when you see people arguing about this online is, oh, well, you know, Apple, Facebook, Google, et cetera, are, um, they're limiting my free speech. They're limiting Alex Jones' free speech. Alex Jones is free from the government perspective to say whatever he wants. And he's, he can be as crazy as he wants. He does not have the right. None of us have the right, to your point, to say what we want to say on these platforms. That That belongs to the platform owner. And I think that's a really dangerous argument to get into because people just don't understand that critical difference here. And so this is not Apple, Google, Facebook infringing a person or an organization's right to speech. They can do whatever they want to do, but that does not mean that those that, that speech comes without consequences. And that's what InfoWars is learning. And that's what I think people are struggling with that that difference. And it's such a clear difference to me, but one I think some people just sort of gloss over or 
choose to ignore in this in this debate you need to follow our rules and behave or you lose the privilege of our worldwide platform and people are thinking no i there, it's not a privilege it's a right to be on your worldwide platform no. yeah. and it's not it's not and it's not and if you and if the platform is managed like it's a right uh, then it's a disaster so anyway uh we've <laughs> we, we've angered so many people on this podcast in the last couple of weeks so why not dive even further in but first <laughs> uh let me take a moment there is more news that we're going to get to but i first want to tell you about our sponsor squarespace make your next move with squarespace you can create a website for your next idea and it's going to be a nice idea that you're going to want everybody on the web to see right we want to see nice ideas on the web these days you'll get a unique domain name it'll be a great domain name you'll have be able have access to award-winning templates so it'll be a very pretty website for your online store where you will sell very nice products that people like or create a portfolio of beautiful artwork that you've made or maybe a blog where you write down all of your very carefully considered and nice thoughts squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do all of those things there's nothing to install no software patches no upgrades needed you don't have to worry about any of that stuff squarespace takes care of all of that for you there's award-winning 24 7 customer support if you need any help they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name so that you can and say type in you know whatever dot plumbing and you'll go right to mr whatever's plumbing business and all these award-winning templates are beautifully designed so you can show off your great ideas plans start at a mind-boggling $12 a month but you can start a trial with no credit card at all by going to squarespace.com slash download fm when you decide to sign up use the offer code download fm to get 10 percent off your first purchase of a website or domain and show your support for download once again squarespace.com slash download fm and code download fm you'll get 10 percent off your first purchase thank you squarespace for supporting this show squarespace make your next move make your next website well we'll move on to a happier topic which is the dying gasps of movie pass <laughs> uh Okay, so it launched a nine ninety five a month plan in twenty sixteen to let users see one movie per day. Uh, many people raised an eyebrow at the ability to sustain that pricing because essentially they were paying for all of your movies and you were paying them once, and they were hoping. I think that the whole you know health club thing would work, but uh, turns out the people who raised that eyebrow were right. Movie passes had to cut back on its plans. They've altered the deal. They've continued to alter it further. The number of films people can see, access to certain movies and certain theaters at certain certain times they keep tinkering with pricing the current plan still is ten dollars a month but it limits customers to three movies a month the service doesn't promise access to all blockbusters at least not right away friend of the show devendra hardawar wrote on engadget that is still a price that's unsustainable the 897 average ticket price across the united states means that if you see you know one movie uh you're in trouble and in, if you're in new york city that's 16 dollars so movie pass was purchased by Helios and Matheson Analytics in 2017, giving it the cash it needed to keep running. But in recent weeks, they've had to take out emergency loans. Sometimes the credit cards that everybody who's a subscriber has given haven't have been rejected. Um, it, it's it's looking grim. But the idea, even if MoviePass doesn't make it, the idea may survive. AMC, the chain of movie theaters, has an A-list subscription that's twenty dollars a month. Uh, between the original $30 price of MoviePass and what they currently have, which is totally unsustainable at $10. Alamo Drafts House has a subscription plan that is coming soon. Uh, my local movie theater chain has a subscription plan that is basically uh, discounted tickets and discounted uh, food at the concessions. Well, food, you know, popcorn mm-hmm. and snacks. And I, I wouldn't call it food. But anyway. Um, <laughs> food right, like so, substances. <laughs> so, so what are the lessons of MoviePass? I think... 
you know, first off, is everything designed uh, destined to be a service in some sort? And 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 is this just an issue of it not being quite quite right? Because I, I obviously there's appeal for something like this, which is if I guarantee you a certain amount of money, you you, you make me stop worrying about individual ticket prices. So I, I don't know what are our lessons learned as we wonder if Movie Pass is going to survive the survive the week. Stephen, do you have thoughts about Movie Pass and the uh, and 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 the sad death of the subscription movie plan? Yeah, I mean, I think we are in a moment. I think we've been in this moment now for maybe, maybe even a couple of years, where lots of companies look at subscription services as the future. You see it in the app ecosystem. You see it in things like Movie Pass. We see it in even companies that make hardware and then they sell you juice packets later. Mm-hmm. You know that, those guys, Juicero. <laughs> this is a thing companies are trying because if you can have recurring revenue from users, that is more stable and potentially a lot more lucrative than one-off purchasing. And so I, I feel like MoviePass is just the latest example of a company that's tried this in a in a type of business that it doesn't work in. Uh, again, uh, look at Juicero. But clearly there there is room for subscription services in other areas. Again, many sections of the app stores are, have moved to this sort of thing. You look at something like even something as basic as Netflix or Hulu, things we take for granted now, use the same business model of a recurring subscription and then you get whatever you want after you pay to get in the door. Clearly, the difference is Netflix is just streaming stuff where MoviePass is buying movie tickets at a loss and hoping that they make (laughs) it up in volume. So I think they're just like the latest example of a company trying this. I don't know what the end game is here. I'm sure that we will cover more companies that try subscriptions in weird areas and it doesn't work. But I don't think MoviePass is unique in that. I think, if anything, they are just one more example of a business model lots of people are trying in lots of different industries right now. Steven's right about the revenue reliability when you can get customers hooked on a service. Um, I think it's actually tougher when the service in question is in a geographic space compared to something streaming online. Because one of the... Th- well, one of the things that... Um, Netflix or Hulu has going for it is, and I'll just use myself as an example is I can be working and then have a Netflix movie streaming in the background or have a series streaming in the background. So I'm, you know, just, I I have some British detective mystery show just kind of quietly looping around when I'm doing something particularly tedious for a few hours. Um, you don't get that same thing with movie pass. There's a higher level of effort involved on the part of the consumer. That said, I think something like this would be fantastic for, say, teenagers who have the time to go to a lot of movies <laughs> compared to older people. Um, you know, if they don't have babysitting costs, in other words. Um, and I think there are probably parts of the country where a movie pass would work really well. And what someone is going to have to figure out is one, how to reduce any remaining friction in the model and two, how to actually make money off of it. Um, I was thinking also that for companies like this, start looking at college sports models where they sell you season ticket packages. Um, Cause there's not a huge financial benefit to being a season ticket holder. Most of the time, um, you know, you don't get a substantial discount on seats, but you do have other perks that make up for it. Like you're guaranteed tickets to specific events. You're guaranteed consistent, a consistent um, seat location. You're guaranteed a few other things. And maybe this is where, uh, companies that try this out will look in the future 
is uh, they will focus less on the econo- the perceived economic premium that users are getting and more on the perceived benefits of being a member of the club. I'm reminded of my um, my uh, video store back in the day. Remember video stores? Oh, yes. And I could buy a pass basically from them, where I got a certain number of rentals, and I got actually got a discount, or 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 you could get an annual pass, and it would cover you for the year. And like, I think the idea of people liking services and and liking to get a deal in exchange for bringing a, a company a certain amount of business, and they know a certain percentage of people won't take advantage of that, which is the whole health club model, and it all kind of works out the person who only sees five movies uh is funding the person who sees 25 movies and and ideally you could make it work out if you're in an area that's competitive which i'm not almost every movie theater in my vicinity is owned by one company but if you're in a competitive environment you're locking people into your theaters instead of the competition's theaters like there's 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 stuff to be done here i i think i i think the movie theaters are angry at MoviePass because they're disrupting like one of the last parts of their business model that has been left Mm -hmm. undisrupted. But I see the consumer, I mean, for all the talk of MoviePass failing as a concept, I think it succeeded in showing that people are interested in something like that, right? I mean, it's not a bad idea. It's a bad business model. Well, I was just thinking, I was, you know, as a, I, I finished up my high school years in a fairly typical suburban environment and going to the movies was something we did almost every weekend because it was one of the few ways where as a high schooler, you could have some measure of independence and some measure of entertainment that wasn't dependent on having a whole lot of money and you still had some measure and it was, it was a fun way to spend time. And I think MoviePass should be honestly aiming it. I wouldn't say aiming at kids. That's that's always a risky proposition <laughs> with any business. Oh, for, here. First one's free kids. <laughs> yeah, free vape pen with every movie pass. But um <laughs> <laughs> Oh no. Right. No, but I think that what you could get out of the whole movie pass experience is look at who's still going to the movies and then ask yourself, how can you continue to engage that cus- those customer bases? Because they obviously existed. I don't think people went into movie pass thinking, yeah, I'm going to go to movies because VCs are funding it for me. Like they were all, I'm going to go to the movies because this is a great bargain. It lets me do something I love without bankrupting me. And there's clearly a demand for it. So figure out how to meet that demand and you will make your money, you know? MoviePass was trying to get there. You know, their, their CEO had talked about we want to be more than just the movie company. We want to be the night on the town, yeah, the date I remember company, that. Yeah. where we can help you find dessert nearby or dinner before, like partner with you know local babysitting services. And they just never, they never got there because they they shot themselves in the foot with the pricing right out the door. I think you're right. I do think that the idea that a subscription service is like fundamentally different has different challenges when it's a a localized good as opposed to something on the internet is definitely true. And one that, you know, MoviePass fought against. I was reading through some old articles about MoviePass preparing for today's show. And, you know, when they got bought in 2017, they were in, they were, they had access like 90 something percent of movie theaters uh, across the country. And over time, that number has gone down as movie theaters, uh, are unhappy with MoviePass or decide to roll their own thing out. And MoviePass was ultimately at their mercy, right? If AMC says, hey, MoviePass, uh, this is great, but you know uh, we're, we're not going to allow you to buy tickets from us anymore, 
MoviePass can't do anything about that, as opposed to something like Netflix or Hulu, where even even Netflix in particular is even less beholden to content makers now because they're spending so much money on their own content. They're they're making that move slowly, and I just think, yeah, I think those challenges. Like, I wonder if they're if they're just fundamentally unable to overcome them. Like, even if it's not MoviePass, if it's some other type of service or company, is that a hurdle that no one can overcome? Do these things Mm -hmm. have to be digital goods online only? I think the one advantage digital goods have is a fairly frictionless experience. There are so few obstacles to acquisition or participation, acquisition, acquisition, what the heck, um, to acquisition (laughs) or, or (laughs) participation or participation. Um, you know, think about how easy it is to click and download a Kindle book compared to a physical one. Think about how easy it is to click and download a track. Think about how easy it is to set up a Spotify playlist, um, Think about and and you know again like I said I I have Netflix when um there was a part of my old job at InfoWorld that was partic- I I would have to go through and look at statistics um and do an analysis on traffic every month and I would always have like some show from Hulu playing in the background I think I went through like four seasons of Bones that way just because it was nice to have like the what was basically white noise going on um. We, whereas like the minute you have to make effort, you have to either like leave the house or leave your computer or leave your tablet, or you have to physically handle something and figure out where it's going to go. Or you have to like make time in your day for something as opposed to just casually sliding it into something you're already doing. I think there's a, I think there's a level of um, difficulty and this is something I, a lot of traditional businesses have are only now beginning to reckon with is the fact that we have an entire generation of adults who have been raised on e-commerce and streaming media. And that is their standard for consumer experiences. They're going to expect something different and they're going to be like, what's the value proposition for me leaving the house, for me handling this physical yeah. thing, for me going for me going out of the way? And if you can't make the case for the value proposition, they're just going to shrug and go back to binge watching Netflix, which seems like an incredible bargain for thirteen dollars a month. So we we uh, we we have to move on. But uh, my last moment here is that I went for the first time actually to an Alamo Draft House in Austin, Texas. Stephen was there not too long ago, True. and. Um, I, I felt like I was in the future because that is a, you know, you've got the reserved seats, which I know a lot of places have. We don't have them here in any theater. Uh, you've got your food and drink brought to you, all of these things. And I, I, I had that moment where I realized, oh, this is why theater owners are so uh, afraid of the future is because what you said, Lisa, is what what's going to get me out of my house? And the answer is it's going to be a really nice experience like I had at the Alamo Draft House. It's not going to be what a lot of these movie theaters currently offer you, which is kind of a crappy screen and it's full of really loud ads and, you know, before the movie starts and, you know, you, you'll be lucky if you can sit with your friends and all these things about it that we accepted as part of the movie theater experience for a long time. But I think... I think I can see the future and I think it doesn't include any of those things. And I, I think this is a, a case where uh, the people who have those theaters are thinking, no, 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 let's treat this like a premium go out for a night on, at like going to the theater or something. And it's just not. And so they either need to change and be in this new different kind of game or they're going to see their audience kind of fade away or they're going to be like, hey, I've got a good idea. Movie pass. Uh, and then we'll see what happens then. Anyway, uh, uh, it's just I, I I wish I could get reserved seats and beer at my seat 
in the county in which I live, but I can't. So, oh, well, I'll, I'll I can. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I, I have to cross a bridge to get anything like that. Anyway, uh, we have a little more to talk about today. But first, let me tell you about our second sponsor. This episode of Download also brought to you by Simple Contacts, an app that makes a tiresome task easy. This is the easy way to renew your contact lens prescription. So you've already got your prescription. You've already seen your eye doctor. Now you just need more contacts. You want to just reorder the contacts. And you can do it using Simple Contacts, using their app. You can complete their online self-guided vision test. takes less than five minutes. Wherever you are, you can do that. You don't have to go to the doctor. You don't have to sit in a waiting room. There are plenty of reasons you might need more contacts on hand. You're going away on vacation, let's say. Uh, So why not use Simple Contacts to stock up for the season and not get left running out of contact lenses? You can order them right from the website or the app. They've got all the lens brands you love. They have options for astigmatism, multifocal lenses, colored lenses, all of that stuff. You can order exactly what you need from the palm of your hand whenever you want. The vision test is just $20. That's a lot less than an appointment would get you just for the vision test. They can save you money and time. Now, remember, this is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. That's not the point. It's not replacing your eye doctor. It's just making it easy to do a refill of your existing contact lens prescription without having to go back in and make another appointment for that. They'll check and make sure your current prescription is still valid, and then they will renew your lenses based on that prescription. Uh, It's super easy to do. I have weird contact lenses, and I thought they wouldn't have them, and they totally had them, and they seem to have like basically all of the lenses, as far as I can tell. Um, It was super easy. Um, And as a listener to this show, you can save $20 off your first order of contacts by going to simplecontacts.com slash download20, or just enter the code download20 at checkout, simplecontacts.com slash download20, or code download20 at checkout for $20 off your first order. Thank you to Simple Contacts for supporting download. Uh, Now it's time for the story you might have missed, a story that may have flown under your radar, but might be worth mentioning. Last week, we talked about a tiny game console. This week, we're talking about a tiny robot. Anki, which makes some remote control cars, and the Cosmo toy robot is back with a bigger brother for Cosmo named Vector. Vector is a robot designed to spend its life on a table or countertop. Oh boy, John Syracuse is going to have words about this. It, it uses computer vision to understand its surroundings and to know if you're looking at it. It can learn your name, do a fist bump, and answer basic smart assistant questions. Its utility seems pretty limited beyond that, but Anki says it will learn new skills over time. And it's adorable, which helps because it's $1.99 on Kickstarter, but it is not the home robot of the future, especially since it is going to be on a table. Steven, it is adorable, isn't it? Did you see video of this thing? Like, it, it looks it looks around, it's very expressive. It's really fun, but I, it's not really a robot. It's just a thing that drives around and you can ask the weather off. It's like a little toy uh, yeah. thing. It's like a remote control car with some attitude uh all right moving on topic number three just this just in breaking news uh samsung this morning as we're recording this august 9th held its unpacked press event in new york for the galaxy note 9 as the headliner there's some other stuff there too it's coming august 24th this is the big galaxy uh, the note uh it's got the s pen which can now work as a bluetooth remote which is uh interesting and strange a big battery updated cameras comes in several colors has what they call a water carbon cooling system i don't know what that is uh, no, i don't think anyone does no <laughs> yeah 
It's water, carb, and or is carbon. it carbon, or is it water and carbon? Is that charcoal? Is that? I would love to know what the process was behind deciding on that name. Like, if there was just some poor chemist in the corner quietly rocking back and forth, going, "But that's not accurate." <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, it, there's a 999 model uh, with 12 gigs of uh, storage and six gigs of RAM, and there's a 1250 model with five 12 gigs of storage and eight gigs of RAM. And apparently, there's even a terabyte option if you need a terabyte of data on your phone you can get that uh any any uh, quick reaction to the note i mean the note has weathered the note 7 debacle and people like big phones and the note is a big phone that sells very well and this is a new version i, I that's sort of my takeaway is like samsung's going to do a new note every year and it's going to be better yeah. every yeah. year because they it's a successful product that they that they uh, do well with yeah i think the note definitely is one of those devices that has a dedicated fan base there are note people right and they they move from from one note device totally. to the next and samsung I knew that people, they were yeah. able to recover from the the seven debacle um you know this one definitely is in line with what they've done the last couple of years where they take sort of the recipe from the the galaxy you know s8 or s9 whatever the galaxy s phone is and sort of scale it up so it looks like a big s9 um the you know, but the big feature is the pen. You mentioned it does some like Bluetooth stuff, so you can use it like if you're watching media on it, you can use it to pause it. They showed a demo where you're uh, taking like a group selfie, and someone just has the S Pen like down low, out of frame, and they can fire the camera that way. Um, so they're doing some interesting things with it. It does make me wish that Apple would bring pencil pencil support to the iPhone, not necessarily for me, but clearly people like this sort of thing, and I think it could be an interesting way to interact with the iPhone, but. You know, it's another year, it's another note, but you know, I think it I think it, the note always stands out to me every cycle that there are people who really love it and really want this phone. And I think it's always interesting when a, a device has such a, a, a loyal audience and loyal fan base that they come back even after something as scary as the Note 7. Yeah, and, and it's funny from from the Apple perspective, because uh, Stephen and I do a lot of conversations about Apple, like, like the reason that Apple had its huge... Uh, huge year three years ago with the iPhone 6 is because the iPhone 6 Plus was a part of that. And that was very much a reaction to the success of phablets in general, but the Galaxy Note in particular. And as there are rumors about there being an iPhone 10 Plus coming this fall, like this is a product category. Samsung led the way. They've got a lot of really loyal customers and, you know, they continue to roll out these, uh, these products that, you know, they're, they're, pushing battery life they're pushing the processor speed they're pushing the gpu like yeah it's uh it's a it's people laughed when the ridiculous giant sized phone the size of your head came out but the fact is for some people it is like the bigger the phone the better so there's the that now the also new galaxy watch was announced uh yeah, it's round this is the one that intrigues me yeah. round looks like a watch uh it's huge you know, too it is it's huge, huge. The, the small one is 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 basically the size of the large apple watch and then there's a larger version so it's definitely a very large uh device but it is uh fashionable with that round clock face so the thing I, and I, jason i believe i read a piece by you recently where, where you were taught you were covering the tim cook comments at the last earnings call and um he kind of talked around how for some Apple customers, the watch had opened the door to them adopting the phone. And for some customers, the phone had actually made them more receptive to the watch because they liked having that two piece ecosystem. And so I'm interested to, I'm interested to see if we're going to see 
that uh, type of relationship between this watch and the note as well. Because uh, it's clearly a model that's working. And I'm just wondering if it's going to work when it's not Apple that's doing it. Well, I think Samsung's brand, I mean, is strong, right? That's the, the other huge mm-hmm. yeah. smartphone brand. And I, I think it's smart for them to have a watch because they, I'm sure Samsung would prefer people buy the Galaxy Watch than buy a Fitbit or something else or be tempted oh, yeah. by Apple because Apple's watch is nice, but you've got to have an iPhone to use it. Like, it, it's almost as if if you're a player at this level, you've got to have a smartwatch because it's part of the constellation of devices that you need to sell your uh, to sell your product. So interestingly, Huawei... Um has recently beat out both Samsung and Apple as the top making, uh, as the top mobile phone, uh, hardware manufacturer in the world. I don't know if they have a watch or if when we're looking at like the smart, smartphone, smartwatch model, that's something that only works for a very small percentage of a global market. And so this is another thing I'm kind of interested in is I'm, I'm don't know, but I would be interested to see if Samsung has different market penetrations than Apple does relative to non-US markets. I don't know. I don't know. The thing about Samsung, I mean, like Huawei, I think does have a watch. But also, if you're using Android, you could just go with Android Wear. It's just that Samsung is like, no, 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 we are going to do our own. <laughs> we're going to do. We're going to give you a tidy package, and we're I think put all our layers. Yeah, and well, you know, you give people a, a complete system, and um. That's tremendously appealing to people who don't want to uh, do a lot of monkeying around and swap in the best parts and optimize and personalize their tech environment. They just want tools that do three or four things, and they don't want to have to spend a whole lot of time figuring out how to make that work. And uh, they also announced the Galaxy Home, which is a smart speaker because everybody's got to have a smart speaker. And this one's powered by the Samsung Bixby Assistant. They've got a partnership with Spotify. Um, So Samsung's in on this game, too. Speaking of the constellation of devices uh, that, you know, why not if you're if you've got a a Samsung Galaxy, why not have their watch? Why not have their smart speaker? And the Spotify partnership seems very smart as well. They've also expanded Bixby on their phone, where I'm very confused because they have two different voices assistants and that just seems to be there's the google assistant and also bixby and that seems that still seems weird to me but samsung really wants to have their own assistant and now we see one of the reasons why is they also want to build their own smart speaker with their own assistant so um anyway samsung well sorry for not having more in-depth samsung coverage but literally this happened right before we went on so mm-hmm. there's your <laughs> there's your samsung news it's gonna you know the galaxy note is gonna sell well like they always do um before we go i do want to give people the fuzzy puppy update we we're kind of down kind of cranky earlier in the show so i like to And on an up note, last week in Greenville, South Carolina, world-class runner Esther Esther Atkins was walking her dog, and she noticed a different dog cowering in a big puddle at a park. So she talks to the dog, very friendly. Dog follows her home. Uh, She posts this picture on Twitter, hoping that someone in her local area will say, oh, uh, that's my dog. Nothing. She goes to the vet. They scan the microchip and they find out that this dog is named Ratchet and he was reported missing a year ago, (laughs) 70 miles away from Greenville, South Carolina. Story's a little bit weirder because when the dog went missing, the people's neighbor who had been complaining that the dog was getting into his yard made this claim that he that he had killed the dog. And they, like, called the cops, and the guy couldn't produce a body. He was like, yeah, it's a gone uh, or something. And they're like, I don't believe that this guy actually did that. So they thought the dog was alive, but there was no sign of the dog for a year. Um, Anyway, last week, Ratchet's people made the drive to Greenville. 
they retrieved him. There's video on the internet of the re the, boy that you've never seen a dog wag its tail more than the the reuniting of Ratchet with his people. And meanwhile, Esther Atkins, um, she's already helped a neighbor find another lost dog in her neighborhood. This is not the first lost dog she's found. She's trying to find a home for four kittens that were uh, that were also discovered uh, right around where the uh, dog was discovered. She is a busy person, and did I mention she is a world class marathon runner? Very amazing stuff. And I want to thank uh, the reporter who wrote a great story that we'll link in the show notes. Uh, the Associated Press's Meg Kennard wrote a great little story about this, too. So uh, let's hear it for Ratchet, the uh, pit bull who is back with his owners after a year away Aww. seven and 70 Aww. miles. Oh, what stories that dog could tell if it wasn't just going to bark. Uh, anyway, uh, that's it for this edition of Download Lisa Schmeiser. Thank you for being here. Where can people find your stuff on the Internet? <laughs> I was going to say Twitter, but I'm rethinking that. Yeah. <laughs> um, go to tinyletter.com slash L-S-C-H-M-E-I-S-E-R. I've recently rebooted my newsletter, So What? Who Cares?, where I uh, do a little cultural analysis, pop culture analysis, which was kind of my first love, and a little news analysis uh, focusing mostly on tech and money and demographic trends. And uh, Stephen Hackett, where can people find the stuff that you do? (laughs) (laughs) I do this podcast. uh, Yeah, you can just listen to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do a a bunch of other podcasts uh, over at Relay. Do Relay FM slash shows, and you'll find a bunch of stuff I do. There you go. And uh, 512 Pixels, too. Don't forget. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Turning 10. Oh, uh, man. Very soon. That's .net, mm-hmm. by the way, 512pixels.net. Don't go to .com. Mm-hmm. I don't know what is going mm-hmm. on there. Anyway, uh, that's it. We've reached the end. Thank you to everybody out there for listening to this edition of Download. We'll be back next week. But until then, we will keep watching the headlines so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody. 